is it you haven't seen the Godfather? Have you seen Taxi Driver? Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. Today with me is my guest, Ryan C. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm good, thanks. Appreciate being on your show. Not a problem. Uh, before we get into uh, the show too much, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone and tell people where they can find you online. Well, let's see. I've been writing about movies and comics, uh, probably 75% mixed um I'd say 75% towards movies and about 25% towards comics for about the last, oh, three, four years online here, just kind of as a hobby. Uh, my main site that you can find my work at is trashfilmguru.wordpress.com. And you can also catch a lot of my reviews on sites like um, Through the Shattered Lens, that's unobtainium13.com. Uh, I do a, pretty much just movie reviews there. I've done a little bit of writing for uh, DailyGrindhouse.com. Probably quite a few of your readers are familiar with that. And um, a lot of my comics reviews have been on the site GeekyUniverse.com. So I'm around, you know, I'm here and there. But mainly, uh, my main site is TrashFilmGuru.WordPress.com. And I'd love to be able to write every single day, but... You know how it goes, real-life responsibilities. I mean, I usually probably put up, I don't know, two, three movie reviews a week, something like that. Yeah, I, I know. it. I, I know it can be pretty tough to, to put out content. I, like, I've, I'm, I'm doing my best to put out some type of content, like, just about every other day, maybe a little bit less. Although it, it feels like it's been forever since I've put an actual movie review up. Yeah, it gets that way sometimes, doesn't it? You got these other things you got to write about, and uh, stuff comes up. And as far as I know, there's nobody paying us to do this shit. So, <laughs> uh, we just do it when we can. All right. Well, as as with everyone I have on here, I have a uh, some movie related questions to to get to know your movie tastes. Sure. So, what are three movies that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet? Uh, boy, you're probably going to have me ready to get committed to a padded room if I tell you those. <laughs> uh, one movie I never get tired of and that never loses its ability to just disturb the hell out of me is Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> um, I think that the entire handheld uh, horror genre started right there. I don't care what anyone says about Blair Witch or Cloverfield or any of that. I think it can trace its roots back to Cannibal Holocaust. And it's funny, I think that even people who like that movie don't always understand what Deodato was trying to do with it. I think that it's a commentary on the excesses of the Mondo genre, if you're familiar with that. Not a whole lot. Okay, but well, the Mondo genre, for those listening out there who aren't terribly familiar with it, was kind of some over-the-top Italian shockumentaries. Mondo Carne was the first. They did others. Africa Audio, also known as Africa Blood and Guts. Audio Zio Tom, also known as Goodbye Uncle Tom. And these were just really shocking flicks that gave in to every kind of excess. And I think Deodato was kind of trying to shine a lens on the excesses of filmmakers like Jacopetti and Prosperi, who were the godfathers of Mondo. And in doing so, he aped a lot of their methods and techniques. And so he ended up becoming what he was trying to comment on, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, I could see that. So that would be one. Another one that I never get tired of is Todd Salanz's Happiness. I think that is a really psychologically disturbing flick. I think that um, it never loses its power to really make you think and to examine uh, just exactly how fucked up society in general is and some of the things we take for granted, like the structure of the nuclear family and stuff, maybe just aren't the greatest things, you know? And I think it asks some really disturbing questions and doesn't provide not just easy answers, doesn't provide any answers. So I and the thing that really pisses me off is that Spielberg and um oh what's his face? Alan Ball, the guy who went on to make Six Feet Under and True Blood, you know, they just kinda cutesied it up and made it safe and sanitary. They took happiness, whitewashed it, seriously whitewashed it for Hollywood, called it American Beauty, and won a bunch of Oscars. <laughs> 
But Happiness is a much better, more honest, and more impactful film. So those are two movies that I can never get tired of. And you know, another one that I can never get enough of is Buddy Giovinazzo's Combat Shock. That is the real coming home from Vietnam story that really shows, okay, the baby thing isn't terribly realistic, but he was trying to do eraser head on a budget with that. But that is the real guerrilla level filmmaking, street level, gutter level uh, movie that just, you know, there's no goddamn hope for the human race at the end of that one. It is so well done. And on no money whatsoever. And I think anybody else, you know, the deer hunter. What were some other coming home from Vietnam movies that are well liked? Um, I don't know. The, the deer hunter is the only one that. Yeah, the deer hunter is a great movie. Don't get me wrong. And there was other stuff like In Country with Bruce Willis, uh, Oliver Stone's one, Born on the Fourth of July. I mean, I like those movies. They're fine, but none of them show the real psychological just shell shock that these guys were into the extent that combat shock does it's just an amazing movie well, those are uh so there's three for you yeah uh, i i doubt that i'll i'll hear a, a similar list anytime soon oh it just depends on who you're talking to yeah and then uh what's your favorite movie that you've only seen once my favorite movie that i've only seen once how about this nobody believes i've only seen this once jaws a good choice i have also only seen that once yeah most people i know have seen jaws more times than you can count (laughs) i saw jaws when i was like 16 um and you know it was already pretty old by then because i was like four or five i think when it came out and well what year was jaws 76 uh i think 75 but i could be wrong i don't want to give my away my age but let's say i was way too young to see it in theaters i finally saw it when i was a teenager it is every bit as good as people say but i don't know i've just never had occasion to watch it again yeah i i jaws was actually the first episode of this show oh really yeah you came across someone who had never seen Jaws? Well, I was the person that had never seen Jaws oh, in its entirety. How about that? You don't want to admit that too loud. They'll tear up <laughs> your, movie, your amateur movie, unpaid movie reviewer's uh, union card in a minute. <laughs> Isn't it a prerequisite that we all need to have seen Jaws, Star Wars, Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Citizen Kane, and maybe like Plan 9 from Outer Space? Well, I've I've seen all of those except for Plan 9. You haven't seen Plan 9? No, I haven't seen any Ed Wood movie except for the uh, the bio movie Ed Wood. Oh, all right. Well, that's a fun little flick. I mean, it's a completely sanitized version of his life. Mm. Um, it really doesn't get into, you know, the downward spiral of his last couple of decades. But I have to admit, I still enjoy watching uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood. I like Tim Burton. People give me a hard time for that, but I like Tim Burton. Yeah, so do I. I, I mean, he's like I, I'm one of the people that uh, I I do and still enjoy his version of Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. I know that's a lot of people consider that's the start of his kind of downward spiral in the the recent years. I don't uh, know. I mean, I thought that was a really good movie. I don't think even people that don't like Tim Burton, I think, would have to take a look at Big Fish and say that's just a terrific movie. Yeah, I think most people would probably say that Big Fish is his last real uh, good and original movie. Maybe I'm alone, but I like I even like Dark Shadows. I think that smart shtick that Tim Burton has gotten onto is a very similar shtick that, say, if you're familiar with Neil Gaiman, the writer, mm-hmm. that Neil Gaiman's gotten onto with fiction and with his comics work, which is what they can kind of take this, they can take this sort of gothic um, kind of, uh, at one point I think it was maybe a little bit edgy, you know, this whole gothic kind of mythological sort of uh hammer horror type of thing and package it in a way that feels non-threatening to mainstream audiences. Now, Gaiman does it more in a way that, you know, uh, is almost cynically even at times designed to uh, appeal to the heartstrings of like a teenage female audience. And Burton does it more with kind of couching it in humor, but they both find a way to kind of take this hammer horror, edgy gothic thing and package it for middle America. Uh, I don't think there's any shame in that. 
Although I, I, I don't think Gaiman has really come to a, a lot of uh, commercial success, at least in his film adaptations. Oh, maybe not, but dude, he is like a living legend in you know genre fiction and especially in comics. Yeah, I, I know. I've I've enjoyed all of his film adaptations that I've seen. I, I'm a big fan of Stardust and Coraline mm-hmm. and uh, Mirror Mask. And uh, tell me that Coraline doesn't feel like a Tim Burton movie. Yeah, I know. It's, a lot of people think it is a Tim Burton movie because it's it has the connection to Nightmare Before Christmas, but it was the director because Tim Burton didn't actually direct Nightmare Before Christmas. He right. just created the uh, the story for it and the character designs. Yeah, those guys, you know, I think there's a real kind of, uh, well, I don't know. We could go, that's a side conversation. We could go back <laughs> into how... Uh, you know, Burton is basically, I mean, obviously I think the Hammer films are his biggest visual influence. I don't know, maybe you disagree with that. And for Gaiman's writing, it's obviously, um, a sort of almost sanitized version of some of the things that Alan Moore, who's a better, I'm sorry people, but Alan Moore is just a better writer than Gaiman is, um, that Alan Moore had done, you know, five, ten years earlier. But they both found a way to kind of make what they're doing more accessible to everybody than the work of uh, those other people. Yeah. So right. more and, power to them. And, uh, and I think I could probably guess this, but what is your favorite genre of movies? Horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Although, not to be honest, I have a real penchant for um, just standard, like, character drama as well. I love, like, Woody Allen, for instance. Which would probably surprise a lot of people. I never miss a Woody Allen movie. I can sit through even the worst Woody Allen movie a couple of times. But he's kind of been on a little creative resurgence the last five, ten years. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a very good movie. Hope you'll get a chance to see it. Maybe, but uh, Woody Allen is another big blind spot for me. I I haven't seen uh, any of his movies yet. Hmm? Really? Not even Annie Hall? Nope. That's... uh... That's one of uh, a couple that's that I've put on on my uh, list of movies for people to choose for guests of this show to to pick out for me. I have Annie Hall and Sleeper as the other one because uh, it's Woody Hall and it's also sci-fi and there I've like sci-fi is probably one of my favorite genres of movies. So mm-hmm. I've seen a lot more sci-fi than anything else. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not a big TV fan. I'll preface this by saying that. But the one show that I have loved since I was, you know, 10 years old is Doctor Who. And so that's pretty much my, you know, I'm not the world's biggest sci-fi guy, but I do love Doctor Now, I'm talking specifically old school Doctor Who. I don't have a whole lot of time for the new series. The first season, I thought, with Christopher Eccleston as a doctor was great. But after that, they kind of lost me. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, I have a little, I dabble my fingers in sci-fi a little bit. Mostly, you know, B-movie sci-fi. Yeah. And then what is your favorite superhero movie? Hmm, great question. <sighs> couple of, can I say it's a tie? Sure. Okay, you gotta go with Richard Donner's first Superman, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that still is the standard by which all of them are judged. I really think that's a great movie. Um, and to tell you the truth, I mean, I didn't hate Man of Steel, but if it would have stuck, not so much in terms of story, I realize you can't have like a bumbling Otis sidekick, you know, in this new darker DC movie universe, but that was thematically like that. Like I described, there was, remember the scene where he's like, where Lois Lane asks him, who are you? And what does he tell her? A friend. We don't get that in Man of Steel. He's not here to be our friend. I think the way I put it in my review was he's here to be our savior, whether we want one or not. So I love Richard Donner's first Superman. And then I'm a tremendous fan of Tim Burton's Batman. Mm -hmm. I think that's just a visual feast for the eyes. I think Michael Keaton to this day is still the best Bruce Wayne and Batman. Um, Bale was good, but you know, I think Batman is over 40. That's how I picture him. I picture Batman and Green Arrow as being the two DC Universe superheroes who are, even though it's never explicitly stated, at least 40 years old. Yeah. And they've been through some shit, you know? Now, I I don't want to go into this too much, but, Mm -hmm. uh, since you do bring up the over 40, I I have to ask, what what do you think about the uh, Ben Affleck casting? 
Uh, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. Yeah. I'll put it to you this way. He was awful as Daredevil, but what are you going to do with a script that bad? Yeah, it's, I'm definitely curious to see how it'll be. But Yeah, I would have probably looked somewhere else, but all these people that are wringing their hands over it, let's not, you know, let's not forget that it wasn't that long ago when people were like, oh, Michael Keaton can't possibly be Batman. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of... A lot of that brought up, and and also a lot of the uh, Heath Ledger yeah. backlash whenever he came out. I mean, you know, we'll just see. I know that Affleck is a huge comic geek, you know, so he has respect for the character. All right, and then finally, what is your biggest film-wise? A film that you haven't seen yet, but you feel like you should, or just one that you haven't gotten around to yet that, that you really want to see? Hmm, you know, it's there's so many that you hear about over the years. And I feel like probably the biggest one that I haven't seen but should, just to grab one off the top of my head, is maybe uh, Kubrick's Spartacus. Hmm. You know, I'm a huge fan of Kubrick. And for some reason, that's just one I've never seen. Even though I had a personal run-in with Kirk Douglas once. <laughs> I was working at a department store when I was growing up. He'd had a stroke by then, you know, mm-hmm. and he put, he was doing a book signing at the store, pulled up in a limo, and he got out. You know, he's not moving so great, but he's doing all right. I was going to hold the door for him, and he held the door open for me. And I thought, what a gentleman. Here is a guy who's decades of, you know, superstardom. I mean, Kirk Douglas, Hollywood legend, right, holds the door open for some working schmuck. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was, what, a quarter of his age? He was probably 80, and I think I was about 20 at the time, 19. So, yeah, I really need to see Spartacus. Yeah, that's... Um, yeah, usually whenever whenever I think of, like, uh, gladiator movies, Spartacus isn't the first one that comes to mind. I usually go to, like, Ben-Hur or uh, Lawrence of Arabia first. But... Mm-hmm. No, you can't argue with either one of those movies, man. Lawrence of Arabia is my dad's all-time favorite movie. <laughs> he can sit through that thing more times than you can count. So, yeah, no, those are great questions. I appreciate you asking them. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I enjoy hearing uh, all the different answers from all my guests. <laughs> I bet you do. All right, and then um, the movie that you had me watch for the first time for this episode was The Manchurian Candidate. You know how often we get a judge up in peace trees? Well, you got one now. She has control of everything. We are at war. It's a cold war. Negotiation's over. The sentence is death. Well, The Manchurian Candidate is a political thriller directed by the great John Frankenheimer, uh, based on a very famous novel by Richard Condon. Uh, it stars Frank Sinatra, the great Lawrence Harvey, Janet Lee, and Angela Lansbury. <laughs> um, and it is a conspiracy theorist dream, I would say, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, in that it deals with the psychological manipulation of a decorated war veteran hero. Uh, if I remember right, he was even a Medal of Honor winner, wasn't he? Well, he won the Medal of Honor because of the events that happened. Right. Yeah, that's right. And he's got, he's having this kind of recurring nightmare where, um, his commanding officer, I believe the guy's name was Sergeant Shaw. Actually, it's, it's to other of- members of the troop. I, I don't, I don't remember seeing any, any big scenes where he himself was having the nightmare. Right. It's referred to, um, and it's basically, it amounts to that, uh, what, I think two or three, two members of his squad are killed by this Shaw guy. Mm-hmm. And he goes to visit Shaw, who's doing pretty well for himself, um, but his mother is sort of a control freak and a big time, uh, anti-communist, kind of a Joe McCarthy type in a dress, right? Yeah, a real rabble rouser. Given what we know about the likes of Joe McCarthy and (laughs) J. Edgar Hoover and the rest of those scumbags, maybe he wasn't immune to wearing one himself on occasion. I don't know. (laughs) But um, And then her husband, who's not his father, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he he makes it. uh, I think one of the quotes is, 
if you learn anything, then you will learn that he is my stepfather and not my real yep, father. Yeah, there you go. And he is sort of a puppet for the mother, and he's got his sights set on a little bit higher office than um, his Senate seat. And then um, Ben Marco starts to realize that the other guys in his squad are having similar nightmares to his. And so he starts to piece together that something really did happen to all of them in Korea and that Shaw is in the middle of it and that he's got to get to the bottom of it. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give away in case there's anyone else out there in your position who hadn't seen it before. You know, there comes a point where you don't want to give too much away. Now, it's had a spotty history. It was a fairly successful picture at the time. And then it was pulled um, and sort of buried, um, and there's been kind of hints that it was sort of pressure from within the U.S. government that, you know, didn't want people seeing this thing. And, of course, that only made its legend grow over the years. Uh, there's a really good book by a guy named John Marks called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate that details actual documented uh, CIA um, actual documented CIA mind control operations that are, you know, have some parallels with uh, the events in the Manchurian Candidate. Hmm. MK Ultra, MK Delta, MK Naomi uh, are some of the code names of these actual projects that, you know, most people are totally unaware of. Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't actually go into any uh, research about the movie after watching it, like I like I sometimes do. Okay, and there's a pretty risible remake that Jonathan Demme directed, starring Denzel Washington and Liev Schreiber. That um, I guess is an okay little political thriller, but isn't much better than anything you'd catch on, say, the NBC or ABC movie of the week. Yeah, I remember whenever that movie came out. But I, yeah, it was I, like five, six years ago, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, like I say, it's a watchable enough little movie, but it doesn't pack any of the wallop of the original. It transcribes events into the Iraq War, and um, Schreiber is the candidate for office. Um, Denzel is the, you know, shell-shocked vet who... Uh, is a war hero, but can't quite seem to hold his life together. And Schreiber's the guy at the center of it. You know, there's not the controlling step-parent angle so much as it's his mother running the show over him and trying to manipulate him into higher office rather than her husband and things like that. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound like it. good choices. Uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, you're not missing a whole lot. Yeah, and uh, I know you mentioned like wanting to shy away from spoilers, but I I generally don't purposefully try to avoid spoilers. Like if they come up as part of the discussion, then we can just kind of go headlong into them. But like if like I can see wanting to to keep some stuff a secret, but I don't know. I'm I've never really cared that much <laughs> about being spoiled. Because I think if a movie is good enough, and I think this movie qualifies, then it doesn't matter if you know the ending or not, or if you know the big twist, because a movie should be able to hold up despite of that. Yeah, well, this definitely, I wouldn't want to discourage anybody from seeing it. I guess you never know who's listening. I don't know, you know, what size of an audience you have, but... (laughs) Very uh, small at this point, but uh, all right. Well, hey, you know, yeah. things take time, right? Yeah, it's 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 just as much about the enjoyment of recording the podcast as it is actually. Oh, sure, it's just fans sitting back and having fun bullshitting about movies. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. You know, I'm all for that. And there's people out there who like to listen to that sort of thing. Some of the real life parallels to that I find really interesting. In that, like Angela Lansbury, for instance. Okay. I mean, how many people know that of her own volition, she allowed her daughter to join the Manson family? Hmm. And how many people know that the Manson family, at least in, you know, the conspiracy underworld, is rumored to be just basically a CIA psychological operation itself? I don't know all the details behind that. But, you know, it's strange how these things kind of... And, you know, Frank Sinatra... I mean, Frank Sinatra was a guy who, you know, was obviously connected to um, the mob, and the connections between the mob and the intelligence community run pretty deep, too. 
And John Frankenheimer, who directed it, you know, kind of made a career out of um, these kind of espionage and spy type thrillers. Um, you know, I'm not saying that people should see um, reindeer games or something, <laughs> but, um, you know, he made some pretty decent little political. How about 52 Pickup, you know, with Roy Scheider? He directed <laughs> that great movie. You know? I haven't heard of that one. You never heard of 52 Pickup? Really good movie. <laughs> But uh, yeah, one one other thing that I usually discuss uh, on this on this show is uh, what I knew about this movie before watching it. Okay, well, and, what did you know? Uh, I knew like the basic plot. I had actually listened to another podcast where they discussed this. Um, it was uh, it was an episode of the Matinee Cast where they. Uh, Whenever only God forgives came out, and they had this as one of their B sides for it, and so I listened to them talk about it, uh, and I remember the, the they discussed a lot of uh, Angela Lansbury's character, and I always thought that it was interesting because, like, I, I'm one of those people where I'm much more familiar with Angela Lansbury from Murder, She Wrote mm-hmm. and Beauty and the Beast and, and a lot of her later work where she plays like the, the kindly old grandmother and, and even like bed knobs and broomsticks. You know, here's a total aside. I always wondered what foreign audiences who like only knew about America. Let's say you lived in another country and all you knew about America, you learned from Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> you would not think the most dangerous place in the U.S. was like, Watts or Gary or East St. Louis or Detroit, you'd think it was Maine. <laughs> Cabot Cove. Yeah, because <laughs> I swear to God, everybody in Maine is dead. <laughs> you know, in the world of murder, she wrote. I mean, forget it, man. I will say this. I've been lost in both Watts and in Maine, and I think I felt more scared being lost in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... Uh... Like I, I, I did think that Angela Lansbury's character was was very interesting, and um, and I had I had forgotten that Frank Sinatra was in this movie, and I thought he was really great. I, I thought he was like the best part of, of this movie. Oh, people forget what a good actor Sinatra was. You know, I mean, like if you ever seen like a man with a golden arm where he played a heroin junkie. Uh, or, you know, this movie, I mean, it's easy to forget because it was kind of a sidebar career for him that Sinatra was actually a really good actor. Yeah, I, I think this this is quite possibly the, the only film I've seen of his. No. Because right. I, I, I don't watch a whole lot of classic movies either. Mm-hmm. Well, so what do you watch a whole lot of? Tell us. Uh, well, obviously, like, uh, superhero. superhero movies for my well, site. What are your but... favorite superhero flicks? Uh well I I did a top ten list um last year and the Avengers topped my list. Interesting. See, I'm about the only person out there who just absolutely doesn't love that movie. <laughs> I didn't hate it. I didn't dislike it. I just so, thought it was all right. You know, it there's had a handful of people that agree with you. It had more superheroes than the average superhero movie, but I don't think like even as far as the Marvel flicks go, um. I don't feel like it was as good as Thor or Captain America. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just weird. Particularly, <laughs> I thought Captain America was a really well-done movie. Yeah, I, I know that I just watched the trailer for the second one that just came out today. Mm-hmm. That yeah. should be pretty good, huh? Yeah, that looks really good. I just kind of wonder how good it's, you know, like Captain, the new Captain America and the next Avengers movie are both more based on contemporary storylines, you know? Uh, cause I think the next Avengers is going to be age of Ultron, mm-hmm. which was just a big, um, crossover storyline that they just did in the last year or two. I don't know. I haven't read it. And I know Captain America winter Soldier is a story from the last, you know, four or five years. And most of the concepts at the core of the other Marvel movies go all the way back to the start of the Marvel universe, really. You know, I mean, the Jack Kirby influence on Thor, especially on Captain America. I mean, that's a 40s type movie, you know, um, they kind of go all the way back. I mean, even the Spider-Man flicks are just reworkings of the old uh, Steve Ditko stories. Mm-hmm. Notice I don't say Stan Lee and Steve Ditko stories. <laughs> another topic for another time. But in my view, the artists deserve most of the credit for the creation of the Marvel Universe and 
Yeah, we'll see. But uh, let's kind of let's bring it back to uh, the Manchurian candidate. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I know one of the things that that took me a little while to get into was uh, the main character Shaw, mm-hmm. because he like, of course, in in the the first thing that you see him in, he's really being kind of a dick, right? Uh, and all and and then. After the the whole brainwashing incident, which you don't find out about right away, everyone's like, "Oh, uh, Shaw is the the bravest and kindest man that I've ever met." Yep, that I've ever met. And it, and it's nice because the way they say it, it it's very it's like a very specific phrase, and you can tell it's like they're reciting it word by word. Mm-hmm. It's rote. And but I I think the biggest the other problem that I have is. He feels like he plays it very robotic, almost. Like it's not a stretch to to think that he has been brainwashed. Yeah, I'll give you that. But it also makes it harder to uh, to empathize with him. That's that's why I especially was was drawn a lot more to uh, Frank Sinatra's character. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's you know I think I always assumed that was intentional. You know, he's our audience point of reference into the story, right? Mm-hmm. And Shaw's kind of standoffish, robotic nature. Yeah, I guess it'd be a little too obvious for a modern audience, maybe, because there's no subtlety to it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But I think that was kind of the point. I mean, you have to remember this whole idea that people could be brainwashed was pretty new in, uh, I think the movie was like 62. Um, and it just come out that the Koreans had brainwashed some of our guys, you know? And so that was sort of a new thing. And I think the idea that it could be played with some subtlety probably wasn't real high on the agenda. Yeah. And, and I also like really, I thought that the, that the interaction between him and his mother, like those two characters were interesting characters, especially the, the flashback whenever we get to whenever he talks about his his first love mm-hmm. and how his mother forces him to write this letter. And he, he even is like, I don't even remember if I wrote it or if I just signed it. And whenever you kind of look at it through the eyes of the movie, it's like, well, even back then, his mother, his own mother was brainwashing him. So right. it, it makes sense that he'd be a perfect candidate for the Koreans. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, I guess without giving anything away too specifically, you know, the end result here is that um, those dirty reds want to um, basically uh, usurp the top levels of our government. And this is kind of how they're going about it with, you know, strategically placed uh, Manchurian candidates. I mean, the word is really kind of fallen into the lexicon as its own thing, right? When you talk about now a Manchurian candidate, people know what you're talking about exactly. Even people who haven't seen the movie kind of know what you're getting at. I don't know. I, I think maybe it depends on what you know, in what circles you're in, because at least as far as my experience, I've only really heard the term as far as the the fact that it is a movie. Okay. Well, I mean, I've definitely seen things on the Internet where, you know, people say, um, well, shit, what won't they say, right? <laughs> I mean, I've seen people hint at, well, I think, you know, Obama is a Manchurian candidate and things like that, you know. And it's just the usual kind of conspiracy conjecture. But, you know, I think when they throw that term out there, they do it with an understanding that people kind of know what they're talking about. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And by the way, I'm not endorsing that idea. In <laughs> it sounds pretty crazy to me, but you know what they're talking about when they say it. Yeah. And then I also thought that the ending of the movie was really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, like, my my first thought whenever it got to the ending, which I, I did call it, well, I, I called 75% of what happens at the ending whenever it, it whenever the setup happens. So what didn't you catch? I didn't catch the very end, like his third shot. Okay, right. I think that um, I think that what can sort of be maybe 
confusing to some, and maybe you have to see it a second time to catch this, is how everything in that movie, every plot revelation, every little thing that almost seems like, what's this got to do with anything, is all very deliberate. You know, everything matters by the end of the movie. Yeah. There are no offhand remarks by the time it's over. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Everything plays into, there are no wasted scenes, that's for sure, but there really aren't even wasted lines of dialogue, wasted facial expressions, wasted gestures. Everything comes into play. Everything matters. Everything needs to be studied. I don't know. You've seen it once. You probably know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to seem overly obvious at first. A lot of it does. Like you say, you know, the robotic nature and all that. Um, but even the things that don't seem like they're going to matter or couldn't possibly matter all do. Nothing's wasted. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I, I think that is done really well that like the, the movie is very tightly scripted. Mm hmm. And then there, there was one other thing I wanted to mention about the final scene, which, which I think is an interesting, an interesting connection from my point of view, because the second thing that I thought of was how similar that scene was to Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Ooh, you're getting one I've never, well, maybe I saw that at some point, but it's not totally fresh in my head. It's, uh, like at, at the end of that movie, that's the, uh, they have a scene, where it's the Klingon peace conference and there's an assassin that's up on a balcony and he's putting together oh. a, a space sniper rifle. Sure. And it's pretty it's set up pretty much exactly the same way as it is in this movie. Except yeah. the, the ending's different. Like in the in Star Trek, the guy gets tackled out the window by uh Bones or Scotty, some member of the crew. Okay. Well, just to draw another sci-fi parallel quick that I would have forgotten about until you brought it up is for any fans of old school Doctor Who that might be watching, uh, the Tom Baker story, The Deadly Assassin, really owes a heavy debt to the Manchurian candidate, even though in that the assassination takes place at the start of the story. But, you know, anyone who's seen them both will see some pretty obvious parallels. Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't seen that, but I, I do think I have heard about that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot – they've made no secret about it. A lot of guys who wrote for Doctor Who back in the day just basically transposed ideas they got elsewhere and put it in there. Well, and that's, that's what a lot of sci-fi is, is it's taking, like, political ideas and – putting it into space so mm-hmm. that way it, it doesn't feel like an obvious political agenda. Right. Although, I mean, you know, I guess it can seem overly obvious, but it's also a way to maybe more safely get those same messages across. Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you're taking, you know, a story about, say, uh, colonial genocide, let's say, and you just make a movie about colonial, a historical movie about colonial genocide. Everyone's going to know what you're talking about. The usual suspects are going to stand up and say, you're trying to get us to apologize for our country's great history, you know, blah, etc. But if you do it, if you take a story about colonial genocide and set it in outer space in the year 3045 or whatever, then you can make the same point, but do it in a way that won't have everybody up in a gander, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's an old uh, trope, but it's one that works. Yeah. All right. And and then do you have any final thoughts about the Manchurian Candidate? Well, I would say that it is definitely a classic of the thriller genre. I think that it's a maybe still the textbook example of what we would call the psychological thriller. I think that... It eschews um, very basic political um, leanings in that I think that a right-wing person could watch it and agree that it's some sort of great anti-communist statement, while a more left-leaning person could watch it and see that it is a critique of our own um you know, kind of our own sort of manipulation of the human mind that our own intelligence services have done. I think it can be read by people of any political stripe as being in agreement with their views, which is sort of genius in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, 
like I, it's a very tricky little puzzle, but every piece matters. And I think that it's all, you know, the craftsmanship of it is just um, beyond question. You know, whether we're talking about the cinematography, the musical score, any of it combines into a really seamless whole. And I think it really kind of sucks you into its web right from the get-go. I will say this. Anybody watching it shouldn't come in five, ten minutes late. You need to be watching it from the start. And if you do that, you're going to be glued to your seat. Even if this isn't necessarily your kind of movie, I think that you, you know, not you personally, but speaking of the metaphorical you, um, would find enough here to remain really thoroughly interested from start to finish. There's no way you can jump into this movie and not be interested in how it plays out at the end. You will not get bored. Yeah. You know, I, I, I definitely agree with all that. It's it's a great movie from start to finish. The, I did think there were a few weak spots, like in in some of the minor, more minor characters. Like I I think the uh, uh, the one black guy from the regiment, he was an example of overacting. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. But I mean, you know, that wasn't uncommon in the day. Yeah. And I also thought that. Uh, um, Sinatra's love interest was I I didn't exactly see where she fit where she really fit into the story yeah I get uh, well you know it's Hollywood you gotta have one yeah but you're right that's an exception to the rule because aside from that everything else was so necessary to what was going on (laughs) yeah you know that it makes that particular characterization stand out you know, in terms of, well, why is she really here? Because everyone else was in that movie for such a definitive purpose, and it was to move the narrative forward. You know what I mean? Yeah, like like kind of her only reason is just to help, uh, which I, I forget his name. I just... Ben Marco, wasn't it? Yeah, Ben Marco. Mm-hmm. Um, how Marco was, at that point in the movie, he was in a real, in a real major funk, and it, I know his... A uh, commanding officer told him to to go uh, find a woman, right. which he end up. That's what he ends up doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. All right. Well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will talk about the movie that you watched for the first time, Dread. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Do you like movie podcasts hosted by inebriated people? That's Kai with the cracking voice and Heather's touched by evil. One thinks he's Spider-Man, the other is a ninja. It's the Man I Love Film Podcast, it's the MILFcast. Hey everybody, I'm Kai. And I'm Heather. And we are the host of MILFcast, the Man I Love Films podcast, the unofficial official podcast of manilovefilms.com. This is the podcast where we like to talk about what we've been watching, talk about movies, but mainly we just like to drink, be silly, and play a whole bunch of games. So we think every other week you should grab a drink, snuggle up, and let us make sweet love to your ears. Otherwise, we'll make sweet love to your couch. So come and find us on iTunes. Just search for MILFcast. Dread came out just last year, and 17 years after the initial attempt to create an on-screen version of Judge Dread with Sylvester Stallone, this version was much more faithful to the original comics, and had a much more serious tone and a stronger focus on the action sequences. While it did please fans of the comics, it ended up underperforming at the box office, but there was still a strong following since its release on home video, and there are hopes that it will eventually garner a sequel. Carl Urban plays the titular Judge Dredd, and he's joined by a recruit that's just barely technically failed her judge assessment test, but because she's a powerful psychic, they decide to push her through into the system and go with Judge on a go with Judge Dredd on a field test where they end up falling into this uh, basically future drug ring where this entire mega apartment complex is controlled by the uh, drug kingpin Mama, who runs the entire operation of this new drug called Slow-Mo, which um, creates, which makes the brain experience time, uh, I think, a hundred times slower than it actually is. And it's got some great visuals. Um, and then, and so what did you think about Dread? 
Well, I loved it to death. I think it was the best superhero movie of the last several years. Um, I'm not ready to put it up there with Donner's Superman or Burton's Batman, but I think it definitely falls into the second tier of really good comic book adaptations. I would include movies like Dick Tracy in there. I think Dick Tracy is a really good movie. Um, I would include like Batman Begins in there. I would call it, you know, a very high quality piece of work, um, that doesn't quite rise up to legendary status like Superman the movie, mm-hmm. uh, but was way better than I was expecting, even though I sort of take exception to the idea that it is really faithful to the sent, you know, the character as created because, and I'll tell you why. This is a very kind of grim, humorless movie, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there, there's I mean, like yeah, there's a few moments of, here and there. Yeah, but by and large, it's a straightforward sci-fi um, dystopian future kind of movie, and a well-done one at that. The visuals, like you said, are amazing. What they didn't get, and this is why I'm surprised by how much I liked it, is because Judge Dredd, you know, is originally created in 2000 A.D. Uh, magazine, not year, by writer John Wagner and the artist Carlos Esquera was a spoof on these hardcore Rambo right-wing law and order types. It is purposefully over the top. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's, uh, it's kind of like the sci-fi version of the, uh, the, uh, I think late eighties, maybe early nineties, um, sledgehammer yep totally it is very judge dread from its inception was very tongue-in-cheek that's fair to say it's a complete spoof on these hard-ass law and order anti-drug types i I will i do have to preface this by saying that i i have never read a judge dread comic i'm just going by what i've read online but from what i understand it it's it doesn't seem like it's so much a spoof more like a satire yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Satire. I mean, either way, it's poking fun at, you know, guys like Dredd. And over the years, now I haven't read the American version of Judge Dredd that's put out by IDW Publishing, but over the years, I think it's lost sort of some of its tongue-in-cheek nature and sort of become what it's satirizing or spoofing. Take your pick. I'll go with satirizing. That's fair. Um, And this movie definitely plays it straight, you know, it's not going for the tongue-in-cheek. Um, Dread is a hard-ass hero in this because that's the way he's got to be. This drug really is bad news, um, and society really does need to be held in check by these guys who are empowered to be judge, jury, and executioner on the spot. And, of course, the original idea in 2000 AD, Judge Dread comic is that this is a ridiculous notion that plays into a lot of male power trip fantasies and stuff like that. And the movie has none of that tongue-in-cheek humor, and that's why I'm surprised by how well that I really did like it. I mean, I dug the hell out of this movie. People, I don't think that it's necessarily faithful in the fact that the humor that we've talked about is essential to Judge Dredd. It's really what it was all about. You know, it's purposefully over the top. But this movie plays it straight and still pretty much gets it right. Carl Urban's terrific as Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great that we never really see his face under that thing, you know, under his helmet. Yeah, um, at the very beginning, you see him with his helmet off, but his face is obscured, which, right. from what I've read, is how they handle it in the comic as well. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, I think it gets... On a surface level, it is very faithful, but on a deeper level, you know, in terms of understanding the satire, it just ignores that altogether. Yeah, that I, th- I think sad. it's, I think, I think a good comparison to a property that took it in the exact opposite direction is I believe that the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic came from the same satire place. Yeah, it, it was a satire of Killer's Ronin. Right, and then whenever it was adapted, it went in the, the complete opposite direction of being uh, more spoof and like the goofy Saturday morning cartoon, where right. this went in the the hard edge and lost most of the humor. Mm-hmm. 
But it's still, you know, it worked for what it was. It worked for what it was, which is... And so did, yeah, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the, the cartoon as well. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, that didn't become a genuine cultural phenomenon, which Ninja Turtles was. That was a true phenomenon for, like, the better part of a decade. That didn't happen by accident, you know? Yeah, and, and it's, I mean, it's still on TV right now. They, they, is it? Yeah, they, and... uh they have a new series on Nickelodeon. I haven't watched it yet, but uh, one of the other podcasts that I, I used to listen to more frequently, um, Talking Tunes with Rob Paulson. He was one of the, the voices. He voiced Raphael in the uh, 80s series. Okay. And he's also voicing Donatello now in this new Nickelodeon series. Well, aren't they talking about, I know they, uh, brought it back as a movie a few years back and it didn't take off too well. Right. The, but, they called it TMNT. Right. And I think Michael Bay had something to do with it as like an air quote executive producer. But I think they're talking about relaunching the movie franchise again too. I don't know how far along those plans are. Well, it's, it's, uh, currently in production as a live action movie as well. Okay. With, uh, Megan Fox is playing April O'Neil. Oh boy, who's directing that one? Uh, I know Michael Bay's involved. I'm not sure if he's involved as the director or as the producer. Well, we can hope he's not directing it. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, uh, so dragging it back to dread here. I mean, I think a lot of people were worried because the Stallone movie was a fiasco. Mm-hmm. Um, having Rob Schneider as his sidekick is <laughs> one of the dumbest casting moves ever. Uh, I'm not a big fan of any Saturday Night Live alums of about the last 20 years, but as bad as I think Adam Sandler and Will Ferrell and Andy Samberg and David Spade, I mean, as atrocious and untalented as those guys are, I think they're all like Charlton Heston compared to um, Rob Schneider. (laughs) God, one thing we can definitely be glad never happened was that at some point in its, you know, over decade long pre-production, Rob Schneider was tapped to play Harvey Picar for American Splendor. Hmm. Let's be so glad that never happened. God. But, um, yeah, I thought Carl Urban, that was pitch perfect casting. I think the visuals are amazing. I'm kicking myself that I missed the chance to see it in 3D in the theaters. And I'm hoping that there will be like a midnight revival around this movie because it really has picked up a lot of fans in home video. Yeah. And a lot of people were scared, uh, kind of away from seeing it in theaters, myself included. Because the Stallone movie memory was still in our minds. And that was a movie that didn't try to play it totally straight, but still just didn't get it right at all. You know, didn't get it right at all. And this one does. I mean, um, it's just an amazing feast for the eyes. The acting's terrific. The whole feel of Mega City 1 and, you know, the slum complexes, the tower blocks is just terrific. Uh, there's plenty of violence and action for people that are in it for that. Most Dread fans are. And yeah, even though it doesn't go for the tongue-in-cheek and plays it almost disarmingly straight, it really feels like a coherently, competently executed movie that, um, what was the name of the guy who directed it? Pete Travis. Really knew what he was doing, had a plan, stuck to it, and they ended up with a really good movie on their hands. Yeah, and I I know that uh, like for for me the the name that I attach with the movie um, because of some of the other work that he's done is Adi Shankar, which he's the executive producer on Dread. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's like I I focus on him because he's done uh, he's produced these other uh, fan films, the high these high profile fan films. He uh, produced the one with Thomas Jane as the Punisher. Right. The Dirty Laundry, and he also did, uh, more recently, The Truth in Journalism, the Venom uh, fan film with Ryan Quanton, um, the guy from True Blood. Okay, I haven't seen that. Yeah, that one's really good. I, I don't know. Um, have you ever heard of the, the movie Man Bites Dog? Oh, of course. Yeah, great movie. Yeah, it's it's basically a takeoff on that. With uh, focused around a Venom character, focused on Eddie Brock as like the the focus of the documentary, and he's being followed around by these three French film crew. Okay. And then and they uh, 
they have Venom show up at, at the very end of it, and, and it's it's really great. Um, Ryan Ryan Quantin is really great in it, and it's I'm black and white, just like it called, It's called Truth and Journalism. Okay, I'm gonna check that out. They got that on YouTube or something? Yeah. Okay. That's definitely worth checking out. So you like Dread a lot too, I take it. Yeah, I I do really like it. I'm like I, I'm kind of disappointed, like because I I started my my site uh, last year in January, and I and I was trying to catch all the ones that came out in theater, but for whatever reason, I also missed out on Dread, even though it it is based on a comic book, but it it uh, it came out. I think a lot of it was timing because it came out like uh, right whenever I was moving. I moved from Indianapolis to Chicago. Okay. And so because of that, I, I took a, a break and then um, I just never caught back up with it until now. Well, it's probably fair to say, too, that last year between the Avengers and the Dark Knight Rises, both kind of sucked all the air out of the room as far as superhero movies go. Yeah. You know, and I think there was maybe a little bit of audience fatigue setting in but because as far as i remember dread came out more like in like september october Mm -hmm. and you know by then yeah there'd been avengers and dark knight rises earlier in the year and just like this year i mean um between iron man 3 and uh man of steel you know they kind of uh Amazing Spider-Man was the third one from last year. Oh, yeah, but, you know, Amazing Spider-Man did okay, too, but I think that even sort of, I know they're making a sequel and stuff, but, you know, it made a profit, it made money. Yeah, it made money, but it wasn't the, um, you know, cross-cultural phenomenon that, say, Avengers or Dark Knight Rises were. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it just it didn't quite, um, which is sort of a shame because I kind of liked Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, I did too. You know, I thought it was, I think out of the Sam Raimi flicks, I think Spider-Man 2 was easily the best of the bunch. Right. Um, but I think that Amazing Spider-Man was better than Raimi's first and third Spider-Man films by far. Uh, I that's very close to how I would rank them. I I kind of flip flop uh, between whether or not I like Amazing Spider-Man or Sam Raimi's Spider-Man better. It depends on the day. I I think I I think I would probably have to watch Amazing Spider-Man again because um, there are a bit there are definitely some flaws with Amazing Spider-Man, oh, mainly yeah. with the lizard. The CGI was cut rate for a movie of that stature. Yeah, but I I think it. I think it also helped because of the way that I led up to The Amazing Spider-Man because the way I did it was I I didn't watch um I didn't watch Spider-Man 1, 2 and 3. I watched Spider-Man 3, 2 and 1. And okay. then I watched Amazing Spider-Man. I don't know. I so but you're with me that Spider-Man 2 was the best of the bunch? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think I wonder if we'll ever see a movie a adaptation of a uh, Superior Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me no. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with Superior Spider-Man. The, oh, the that's old... what's going on. That's what's going on, right? You haven't heard. Oh, about Oh yeah, that's I. Yeah, now that that's the one where Doc Ock has. Yeah, it's the been going on Spider-Man. for about a, yeah. yeah the last year or two. Peter Parker is apparently dead, and Doc Ock has taken over his body and is Spider-Man, and he's sort of you know I guess he's sort of a hero, but he's still also kind of an asshole. Oh, so um, yeah, but you know, I'm mixed up with is it. Is it Doc Ock's mind in the body of Spider-Man? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And for a while, like, for a while, there was still some of Peter Parker in there, but then they had, like, a battle on the, I don't know, psychic plane or something, and Doc Ock apparently beat him for good. And I think it's been probably 10, 12 issues now since anything was seen of Peter Parker fighting for his mind. He's out of there. But I think we've gotten a little off track. Yeah. Which will happen. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was just gonna say real, real quickly yeah. that. But we were it, talking it, about some of the sort of cut rate CGI in Amazing Spider-Man. That is one problem Dread does not have. The CGI in Dread is just spectacular. Right. Although, like, I am, I have to say that I'm still a fan of practical effects, and well, even though too. I admit that, like, especially the the digital blood work. And dread is done really well. It's still digital blood work. Mm-hmm. No, you always know there's really nothing there. Yeah, you know what I mean. Which I guess is 
hate to say it, one of the problems I had with the Avengers, too. All these scenes that people say are so spectacular, these battle scenes, were all just done in, you know, a lab. There aren't even, like, actors in there when it's the Iron Man suit fighting the uh, alien Chitauri or whatever they're called army, you know what I mean? Yeah, although, like... Uh, that's that's one thing that I I never I never really got into that much or I don't really praise that highly about the Avengers. It's not really the the action sequences. It's more the character and the humor stuff. That, sure. That so even hurt. you would have to admit that we've seen more than enough shots of Tony Stark's head inside the Iron Man. <laughs> My God! I but think it, at least, at least, seeing a shot of Tony Stark's head inside the Iron Man helmet, the HUD, is better than finding every excuse in the book to have them take their mask off or have oh, their mask God, get God. damaged. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I mean, God, in the first couple of Tim Burton Batman movies, it's like he couldn't even keep his identity a secret if he tried. (laughs) That was kind of one of the big flaws in that. But I think, uh, to get back to Dread here quick, I think that it's a combination of great performances, uh, very arresting effects, and a really solid, well-paced story with good characterization um, that makes it pretty darn enjoyable. Yeah, if I had to point out a weak point in this movie, I think that would probably fall on Mama. Like, not so much in her performance, because I think uh, Lena Headey does a great job. Yeah. But I think just more of in concept. You mean like just a weak central idea? Yeah, because it's like she's this drug kingpin, but she doesn't really do anything. Like, she has this reputation of being crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. And she has, like, the really the only thing she does is, I mean, she she has the, the, the flashback scene of what she did to her old pimp. And, yeah. And she threatens her tech guy with a knife. But I thought it was an interesting twist to make her an abuse victim, you know? Yeah. But aside from that, we don't really, I didn't really get a sense of her, like, her source of power, I guess, would be the way to put it. Because she has all these henchmen. But... Yeah, I just assumed, hey, she's got control of the supply of the slow-mo drug, so that's enough. But, I, you know, I guess I can see your point. I can see your point. How did she get control of that market in that peach trees building, you know? Yeah. How did she go from, you know, abused on prostitute to, yeah, there's, yeah, I can see that. There's a gap in there, sure. But aside That's from great. that, everything else is great. And I also, th- I also really liked um, Recruit Anderson. Yep. The the psychic. Mm-hmm. And, and especially like the the scene, uh, her she has a really great character arc throughout this movie, and and uh, you could almost argue that she's really the focus of this story. Oh sure. No, that's very true because I mean you know what you're getting with Dread from start yeah. to finish, and and, and, Dredd, and of course Dread doesn't to... change. Yep. Dread's the same at the beginning of the story as he is at the end of the movie, and you don't know how it's going to play out with her. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think people are if they do a sequel and things seem to be kind of you know there's definitely a fan push for it. Whether that'll amount to anything, who knows? Maybe they'll do it all through Kickstarter. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. Well, I'm glad we both agreed these were both good movies. Yeah. And I'm glad that, uh, hopefully, you're glad that you saw Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, I, I, I did really enjoy it. It's, uh, it was another great classic movie that I'm glad I got to see. Yeah, and I love Dread. I hope they do a sequel. But if they do it through Kickstarter, I'm not going to contribute. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about does it for this episode. Why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online? Yeah, if I haven't pissed everyone off, <laughs> right now, you can find me at uh, trashfilmguru.wordpress.com. Uh, like every other blog in the universe right now, we are in the middle of our Halloween horror month. So, you know, if you want to read some horror movie reviews, there they are. Um, I kind of pride myself on uh, hopefully being a better than average writer as far as these things go. And I'm very pleased to have, you know, a decent little following um, that seems to follow my work. So I appreciate that. You folks know who you are. Uh, Thank you. That's the only form of 
compensation I get is just knowing that people enjoy the stuff and want to keep reading. So as long as there's people that want to keep reading, I guess I'll keep writing. And if you don't find me there, you can catch a lot of my stuff at uh, Through the Shattered Lens. That's unobtainium13.com. You can catch my comic stuff at geekyuniverse.com. And once in a while, I pop up over on dailygrindhouse.com, too. All right, and I am Bubba Wheat, and as always, you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat, and uh, if you would like to be a, a guest on a future episode and would like to see all of these great films that I haven't seen yet, <laughs> I do have an account on letterboxd.com slash Bubba Wheat, where you can check out my watch list there. And uh, I've, I've got about 150 movies listed on there where you can see and look in amazement at, at uh, some of the classics that I haven't seen yet. And, uh, and next episode will be a, a slightly different episode. And if uh, you want to catch a preview, go ahead and listen through to the end. As usual, I have the mashup trailer for the two movies we will be talking about on the next episode. Until next time. Sam was hoping to start her new life with Jerry, but there's been a sudden change in plans. You must be truly desperate to come to me for help. She's off to Vegas. We're from different worlds. He's off to Mexico. I gave you my word. I would return. Now, his pursuit of a priceless legend is about to catch up with her. What will you sacrifice? You know, you're a very sensitive person for a cold-blooded killer. When do we start?